Hello and welcome to Jetavana Rama Buddhist Monastery. So we meet again. This, I believe, is the ninth episode of this series of Dhamma Talks. On this program, we study, explore and discover the path to happiness. You'll recall from the very first talk that I admitted that there are so many things that people do all around the world to be happy. And there are so many paths that have been laid out and promoted and people are encouraged to take in the name of happiness. People do a multitude of things. Different things make different people happy. As the saying goes, horses for causes. But despite the numerous ways in which people claim to be able to achieve happiness, it is ironical though, isn't it, that people are as yet not fully satisfied. Ask yourself this very question. Are you happy? Are you truly happy? Are there things that worry you in the back of your mind? Whenever you wear a smile on your face, does that cover a frown or a cry that was on your face a few minutes, a few hours, a few days ago? Is that simply a mask? Do you check yourself in the mirror before you receive visitors to your home to make sure you look presentable? And that's not just the makeup, but to make sure that it is not evident from your face that you have been unhappy, frustrated, angry, disappointed a few minutes ago. And then you try and wear your best smile to show that you are happy to others. Are you not fed up of pretending to be happy? Is it not time that we discovered for all of man's advances in technology and various other fields, is it not time that we find the true path to happiness? Think about it. The purpose of these talks, ladies and gentlemen, is one to awaken you to the truth. Two, to ask you to question yourself. Are you living a life to which you are honest yourself? Or are you putting up a pretense? Sometimes keeping up with the Joneses, as they say. To be fully satisfied and to live a fulfilling life, one should discover the path to unconditional happiness. What do we mean by that? A happiness that does not depend on one or more external factors. And by now, for those of you who have been listening to these talks regularly, I'm sure you will appreciate that happiness is twofold. 
I agree, we haven't as yet discussed in its full detail what unconditional happiness entails, but we have discussed the problem with conditional happiness. This is the only happiness we have known thus far. What is conditional happiness? Happiness that is dependent on various conditions being in our favor. Think about the things that make you happy and think about how that happiness can be taken away from you. Just think about today. How many things happened just in the course of the day that made you happy and how many things happened that made you unhappy? So you see, it is obvious then, isn't it, that there are external factors that can influence your state of mind, your happiness, your unhappiness. The purpose of these talks is to break you free from that dependency. It is possible. It is entirely possible. And that is why I have chosen this path for myself. I have personally gone as far as I possibly could and also much further than the average person in the pursuit of happiness in the ways that most people around the world seek happiness whether it is through wealth, power, relationships, social status and so on. In my personal life, in my lay life before I became a monk, I explored all of these options and avenues as far as I possibly could. And when I encountered the teaching of the Buddha, I realized that actually there is a greater happiness that I could achieve by following that path that I could never achieve by following the path that I was on back then. And this is the reason that I chose to consider this alternative. I agree and I expect that you today and perhaps our listeners in the future will not be Buddhists either by choice or by birthright. Because Buddhist philosophy is not essentially for Buddhists. Buddhist philosophy is to realize. And it does not matter what religion, race, creed or belief system you hold on to. My ask of you is that you continue to be faithful to your religion, whichever that might be, to your belief, whichever that might be, to your place of worship, whether that is a mosque, a church, a temple. My ask of you is that you continue to be a patron, to be a benefactor to these places, to these institutions. The only thing I ask of you, those of you who join these talks, is to be open-minded and consider what I share with you. Everything I present to you on these talks 
will appeal to the intellect. I will not share with you things that you must take through blind faith. I will not ask you to believe anything just because I say so, or that I read this in a book and therefore it must be true, or so and so said so, and therefore you must believe it. I myself am not one like that. I always question, I always analyze, I reflect, and I apply. I take what I learn into the lab of life, and then I test for myself. I listen with faith, but that's not to say I accept it all as true. No matter what I listen to, I listen with faith, because if I do not have faith, then there is no point in me listening to it. The faith that I have is not that it has to be true. The faith that I have is that whoever sharing whatever they know with me may have my interests at hand, at least to a small extent. They just may have something that I find of interest and they just might be sharing something which they believe will help me. Not all people in this world are bad. There are good people around. In fact, most people are good people. So that is why I listen to whatever I listen to with faith. But faith alone is not what I use to accept something and then hold it as true, as a doctrine, as a philosophy for my life. What I then do is whatever I have listened to with faith, I then, I then verify. I verify in the lab of life. What is this lab of life? It is simply my personal life. In the experiences that I go through, in the people I meet, the places I go to, the things that happen in my life, these are the experiences, these are the things that happen in my life. This is simply my life. So I apply what I learn in the lab of life and it is then I realize which of the things I have learned I can accept as true and then I keep them with me and adopt that as my philosophy for life. Then there may be other things which when I test in the lab of life doesn't stand true. It doesn't hold water. What I then do is not completely and categorically discard it, but I put it to a side. I put it to a side because it may be that some point in the future, perhaps when I have more information, more experience, I may wish to revisit that learning. I may wish to reconsider and then it may turn out to be something that is more acceptable to me than it once was. So this is the method that I ask of each and every one of our listeners. I am not seeking followers because I'm not one. I can't expect of you something that I am not. What I'm looking for are good students. Students of not myself, but rather students of life. People who are interested people who are keen on learning about themselves. A lot of people are very interested in learning about what goes on around them, what happens on the other side of the globe, 
what happens on moon and what happens on Mars. But very few people indeed are interested in what happens to them. So this is all I expect from you, to be a good student of yourself, of life itself. So today, as we take another step forward on our journey and hopefully move forward and proceed on the path to seeking this unconditional happiness. Let us begin today's program by making our veneration to the supremely enlightened Lord Buddha. Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhassa Last week, what did we talk about? Ah, oh, yes. We talked about the roller coaster of life. Figuratively, metaphorically, we discussed how a roller coaster is something, is, a, is something of an experience, and how the experience of a roller coaster, for those who may have ridden one, would have experienced pleasure. We discussed how pleasure is not quite what we have always thought it to be. So far we have introduced this term called vexation, if you remember, and for the time being I think we can simply think of it as a void that we feel deep down inside our minds. It is the sensation that something is missing, an unsatisfactoriness, that we are not fulfilled, that something needs to happen to make us happy. It's a negative feeling because none of us enjoy being vexed and the numerous examples we talked about last week should give you some indication of that. We will continue to discuss a few more examples this week as well. And this is because I really want you to try and understand this concept of vexation. Because through vexation, you will begin to properly understand what pleasure is. So we have always experienced pleasure throughout our lives, but never really stopped to ask ourselves the question, to ponder what pleasure really was. So this is conditional happiness. Pleasure is conditional happiness. Let's take another example. Have you heard the saying, and I'm sure you have, Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's a very common one, isn't it? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And 
An example of this, something that happened to me once a few years back, has vividly stuck in my mind and I'd like to share that with you. A moment when this absence makes the heart grow fonder truly came to life for me. So here's how it went. One fine day, I wanted to set out and go out and get some work done. I was at home and I was going to drive my car to get there. So what I did was I walked to where I normally leave my car keys and when I got there, I realized the keys were missing. So it just wasn't there. So at home, we had this place on a key holder where I used to put my keys, but my car key wasn't there. So I did what any person would do, is look for their keys. And some of the places you'd look for would normally be your pockets. So that would be your first port of call. Then I couldn't find it there either, so I walked into the bedroom and I looked for it where I would normally expect to find it. So, on the dressing table, besides the bed, I also looked in the cupboards just in case I might have put it there by mistake and I couldn't find it in any of these places. Now by this point I was starting to get a little bit worried, but I had only checked the bedroom, so I didn't begin to fret. I reassured myself that soon enough I should be able to find them. Then I walked into the living room and I also saw my wife there and I asked her, Have you seen my keys, honey? And she, as she normally does, suggested some of the obvious places. And I said, yes, I've checked in all those places, but I haven't found it. Would you mind giving me a hand? So she also joined this key patrol to try and find my car keys. And so we looked in the, around the dining table. Oh, I also checked in the fridge, just in case. Everywhere in the kitchen, in the cupboards, in the pantry. Now you can imagine by this point, I was getting a little bit worried. I could feel myself getting anxious and because one of the problems was that there was only one key. I had previously lost the other key and against better advice I decided not to get another key cut, for which I cursed myself at that point, but it was too late for that. So then I went into the other rooms in the house and started to look for the keys and I couldn't find them. So I was really worried by that time. I then walked into the garden, just in case, who knows, sometimes you find things in the most unexpected of places under the kitchen sink, between the cushions and the sofa, 
under the TV stand, behind the TV, in the post box, would you believe it? In the laundry, in the washing machine, behind the fridge, you name it. I even checked in the bathroom and I couldn't find it. At that point, I was a complete wreck. I really needed to make this journey, but more than that, I was really worried by now because without my key, I wouldn't be able to drive my car again. Yes, I know you could get a replacement, but that was going to be very expensive. To somehow contact a keysmith and to get them to turn up and somehow work their magic and uh, get a key cut. And also, there were these keys were some of those advanced keys that they have in these days. And it wasn't easy to get a duplicate cut. You actually had to contact the manufacturer. So it would, it would take me some time to get hold of a replacement. And I didn't have all that time either because there were some errands I needed to run and they were pressing. So I was pulling my hair out. And no, that's not how I lost all my hair, as that happened later. But what little hair I had back then, I was pulling on it and I was really, really, I was almost having a nervous breakdown at that point. So at this point, I was very frustrated and I, I could feel my heart pounding because I had lost something that was very important and precious to me. I really loved my car, I must say. It was a, it was a Volvo, uh, the newer model S40 back then. I really loved it because it was the first car that I bought and it was, uh, she was my pet back then. So I used to call her Black Beauty because it was black. And uh, so I couldn't find my keys. I walked to the car as if to apologize, because at this point I was very disappointed with myself. I walked to the car as if to apologize and to confess how irresponsible I had been with her. And I was sweating because of how nervous I was feeling at that point. And I just couldn't, my legs couldn't carry the rest of my body by that point. I was, I was so disappointed. And I was, as I said, almost having a nervous breakdown. So I sat down beside the car against the wheel and I had my, and I held my head in my hands in frustration and I was now trying to think what I could do to come out of this problem. At that point, a thought came to my mind. I don't know where it came from, but it just came into my mind and I thought, perhaps I should just check under the car. And I did. And lo and behold, the key was there behind one of the wheels. So it was covered from 
clear sight. That is why I hadn't seen it before. Now when I saw my key and I put my arm out and grabbed it and held it in my hands, you have no idea how happy I was. I thought at that point that there couldn't be a happier man alive. All I had in my hands was a pair of keys and I was sat there on the ground against black beauty thinking to myself that I was the happiest man alive. Just holding a pair of keys in my hand and I was elated. I couldn't explain how happy I was at that point. I was almost jumping up and down in happiness and in delight. I ran back into the house, to the kitchen and gave my wife a hug and said, darling, I love you so much. I don't know why I said that. Had nothing to do with me having found the keys. But it was my way of expressing a deep sense of relief, a deep sense of satisfaction, a deep sense of joy and happiness and what's the word? Pleasure. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm sure most of you will have had similar experiences in their lives. I can't be the only one who's done something so silly as that. I think people lose things all the time and then they start to vex and then when they find it, they feel a great sense of pleasure. See, again, we find here the logic behind this pleasure. How pleasure works, it is to demonstrate this principle that I brought this example to, to life. How did that work? You see, this pair of keys, I'd had it with me for as long as I'd had my car, and I'd, I, would, I would see it day in, day out. I would have held those, those keys in my hand so many times previous to that, many countless times, maybe hundreds if not thousands of times. But on no occasion prior to that had I, had I sensed so much joy having seen or held that pair of keys. How could a pair of keys bring me so much joy? I began to ask myself. This very pair of keys I had seen many times over, far too many times to count or remember. This very pair of keys that I'd held in my hand, swirled around, but I'd never experienced so much pleasure as I did that day when I found my lost pair of keys. So how did I experience that sensation of pleasure? Would you even suggest that that said pleasure was given to me by the keys? Are you suggesting that the pair of keys is a source of pleasure? Could that be true? Should I not have experienced that pleasure every time I held 
that pair of keys in my hand, but I didn't. It was only that day, perhaps the only time I experienced more pleasure would have been the day I first got my car and those keys were handed over to me. So that was when I took possession of the car. But this day, a few years later, I experienced an euphoria of delight that I had not experienced before. Certainly not in regards to a pair of keys. It's not possible then, is it, for us to explain this pleasure through any connection to the key itself? What did the key have to do with my pleasure? The pleasure that I experienced at that point. I was completely overjoyed. I was so delighted. And in fact, I think relieved was the best word I could use in that situation. So what had happened? Absence had made the heart grow fonder. Had it? See, I agree with that saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But I think it would be prudent of us to take a closer look at how that is the case. In a previous week we discussed beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder. And while we accepted that, we took a closer look. We analyzed it by taking a closer look at it and asked ourselves, how is it that beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder? Why is it that that is true? In the same way, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But how? Why is it that absence make, makes the heart grow fonder? Is it absence that makes the heart grow fonder? How is it that the heart grows fonder? And what is this fonder? How does that happen? Well, now we know, don't we though? As we have been studying this concept of vexation and the relief from vexation as pleasure. This is why I ask you the question, what did the keys have to do with my pleasure, if anything? If it was the keys that brought me this pleasure, then I should have experienced that pleasure, that same pleasure, every time I saw that pair of keys. Wouldn't you agree? But I didn't, did I? Ask yourself the same question. Think about the last time you lost something, whether it was a pair of keys, or perhaps your phone, maybe a ring, perhaps a, a necklace, maybe something else that you like. The last time you lost something and you were looking for it frantically, you turned the whole house upside down, remember? Looking for it. And by the time you found it, the rest of the house was a complete mess. Remember? It just depends how badly you want it. And if you really, really want it, then you'd not stop at anything. Every little nook and corner would get examined, right? And you'd do everything you possibly can to find it. Especially if it was something that was precious to you. And for me, my keys were precious. 
because I loved Bag Beauty. She was my pet. So I did not want to part with her. And I felt that I had been very responsible. So it was very disappointing and frustrating when I realized I'd lost my keys. Nonetheless, when I found them, I felt absolute pleasure. So much pleasure that I couldn't explain in words. And you know, when I experienced that pleasure, I didn't need anything else in my life to make me feel complete. Just the key and I, we were complete. It just felt like life was worth living. Simply because I held a pair of keys in my hand. But the very pair of keys I'd held in my hand so many times before. And I hadn't felt that. Why so? My point here being, folks. Do you think it was the keys that brought me that pleasure? See, the same pair of keys, if I handed them over to you, would it bring you the same amount of pleasure? And the same pair of keys on another day, would it have brought me the same amount of pleasure? So you see, I found the pair of keys, right? I found it from under the car. And then I went and returned it safely to its usual place. And vowed to myself never to lose it again. Right? And after having vehemently apologized to Black Beauty. Right? Now... Imagine the following day, I saw my keys again. Right? Exactly where I would expect to find it. Do you think I'd feel the same amount of pleasure? You know the answer to that is no. Without a shadow of a doubt, because you all have experienced what I'm talking about. Because you have all lived life and you know the feeling when you lose something and then when you find it again. It might even be a loved one. Think about a time when you might have lost a child, say you go with your family to the fair, right, or to the supermarket. You go out and in the midst of a crowd, your little one runs away, right, and then now they're lost in the crowd. You look around trying to find them, right, and now fear starts to creep in. Now you can feel your heart pounding because you know all sorts of things that have happened to children. Now you start calling out his or her name. And if you are with someone else, right, they, you depart, you part ways and you go looking for the person, for the child. And everyone you bump into, you, are, you start asking them, excuse me, did you see a little child go this way? Excuse me, excuse me, I'm really sorry, trouble. Did you see a child go this way? About seven or eight years old, young girl, long hair, blue eyes, Remember the last time this might have happened to you? When you lost a child in a crowd, what happened then? How did you feel? And then, perhaps after lots of searching, you find her. She's, she's run away to go and play with the ducks, just by the pond. Right? And then when you see her, you run up to her, and you catch her and embrace her. And then you almost smother her, your child, and give her a million kisses and tell her how much you love her. Oh, my baby, I thought I lost you. I love you so much. 
Sometimes you express your love for her in ways you have never expressed before. Where was all this love before this event? So much affection. She's overwhelmed by all this affection. She's not known so much affection coming from you before. She's never experienced that from you before. So much love, so much affection. She's never seen you so delighted, so at pleasure to be in her presence. So what was the source of this pleasure? Particularly given that the same person, the same child, having been with you for so many years, six, seven, eight years in your life, you've never been so delighted to see her. Maybe so much so that on some occasions, let's say, you've had a long day at work, right? Something's annoyed you and you come back home and she comes running up to you. Hi, mummy. And your response be, just leave me alone. Right? Honey, just, just cut it, right? I, I just want to relax today. I'm, mommy's so tired, right? Mummy's just going to go take a wash and she's going to get some dinner and she's going to go and have some rest. Right? We'll talk tomorrow. All right, I'm not angry with you. I am just so tired, darling. Okay, so please go and do your homework and go and just stay away from me. The same person, the same child, on another day, you give her an embrace so strong, she almost suffocates. She might even start crying. Mummy, let go of me, you're hurting me. <laughs> Why? So what was the source of this pleasure? Was it the child? If it is the child, then how come you don't feel that sensation of pleasure every time you see her? Nothing about her has changed. She looks the same. She's the same height. She's the same weight. She speaks the same. She walks the same. She talks the same. Nothing's changed. But what's changed? Here's what happened. When you thought you lost her, your mind went into a deep state of vexation. A profound state of vexation. A deep void. Because you lost something you love. Something you want. Something that your happiness depends on. Or at least you thought. We'll come to that. Something, some, some external factor that you believe makes you happy was taken away from you, at least temporarily. So, absence has now made the heart grow, go into a state of vexation. So they say absence makes the heart grow fonder. I'm breaking that down for you in a way that you can make more sense of it. So what happened? Departing from that child, at least temporarily, for a brief moment, might have been a few minutes when you thought you lost her, your mind went into a deep state of vexation. Some mothers may even faint at the knowledge that they've lost their child. By lost, I, just, I simply mean missing, gone missing. It's a terrible feeling. Those of you who have children, will at some point, I'm sure most of you at least, will have experienced this in a crowded place. A child can go missing quite easily. 
That's why I say, think about the last time this happened to you, and that is the lab of life. I always urge you to apply these principles into the lab of life so that it becomes a realization for you. You may have, on those occasions, expressed so much pleasure to be reunited with your lost and loved one. However, it may not have dawned on you at that point to consider how it is that you feel that way because you knew none the better. You didn't understand back then how the mind works, what is the science of pleasure, how the mind achieves the sensation of pleasure and that pleasure is relief from vexation. So how did it happen in this occasion then? When you are reunited with that lost child, what happens? The vexation that was created in your mind when you were departed from the child, when you lost your child, is now relieved. It is that relief from vexation that brings you so much pleasure. The more the vexation, the more the pleasure. That's the way it works. So if you lost your child only for a few moments, then the pleasure that you experience as you are reunited would not be a great deal. But if you lost her for, say, an hour or maybe a day or even, say, a week, could you even imagine that, losing your child for a week? But what about when you are reunited with her? So you see what happens here. Absence, right? Absence first makes the heart go, in, go into a state of vexation. By heart here, of course, we know we, we're talking about the mind. The mind goes into a state of vexation. Because what the mind likes, what the mind wants, what the mind desires, it wants to be in association with. So when the child is taken away from you, that vexation begins to develop. And with time, an acute sensation of vexation develops in the mind and sometimes to a point that can even make someone go insane. Wouldn't you agree with me? Have you never heard of that? How sometimes parents, loved ones can go insane when they know they've lost someone they love dearly? Why does this happen? Because the mind goes into a state of vexation and that vexation begins to develop. The build-up of vexation is eventually relieved when you are reunited with the thing or the person that you lost. As it once happened with my car keys and would have happened with lots of similar or other things in your life. So what I'm suggesting is, go back to those experiences in your life. As you listen to this talk right now, go back to such experiences in your life and ask yourself the question, what really happened? Analyze that situation. Carry out a post-mortem. Do a review, a post-incident review. And try and explain it now using the principle that you have learned through this talk, that pleasure is relief from vexation. So what happened was, absence 
started to build up vexation in your mind. And when you were re reunited, so presence, which is the opposite of absence, presence what did what? Relieved that vexation from your mind. Therefore, you experience pleasure. And this is why, folks, you do not experience that same amount of pleasure when you are always in the presence of that person or object. When you have constant association with that person or object, you don't feel that same sensation of pleasure. It could be your phone, for instance. Now, there may be some of you who, are, who really are connected with their phones. Right? It's a relationship that simply you feel cannot be broken. You can't. Some people can't live without their phones, right? So imagine you check where you normally leave your phone, and that could be in your bag, maybe in your pocket, and you can't find it. Then you start looking around, and you st when you still can't find it, right? now you start to become anxious. You know the feeling I'm talking about, right? It's a deep void is probably the best way I could explain it, that you start to feel inside your heart. This is the mind working, but it's normally felt in or around the heart. There are reasons for that, which we don't need to get into detail at this point in time, maybe someday in the future. But these are not the particulars that you need to be interested in either. It does not matter where you feel it, whether it's the heart or the mind or the stomach, it matters not. The problem is there's suffering. This vexation is not a pleasurable feeling. In fact, it is the, it, it's quite the opposite. It's a very negative emotion. No one likes to be vexed. This is why I asked you the question in a previous talk. Do you like to be stuck in Groundhog Day? Where every day is Christmas Eve and you never get your present? Would you like that? No one likes to be stuck in vexation. Everyone wants to relieve themselves from vexation as quickly and as soon as possible. Because it is that relief from vexation that brings you pleasure. Could you explain pleasure in any other way? See, up until now, we thought, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that, pleasure was something that we achieved from associating things outside of us. Objects, people, and so on. Events, Right, so a tasty apple, a slice of cheesecake, a beer, a bag of crisps, a chocolate bar, a drink, a picture, the sweet fragrance of a perfume, the smell of a jasmine flower, right, and so on. Up until now, I think you'll agree with me that you thought that pleasure was to be found in these objects or in people. Your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, your children, parents, your best friend. Up until now, perhaps you thought that pleasure was to be found in these people. So therefore, the more time you spend with them, the more you experience pleasure. But... I think we are starting to prove, hopefully, that that is not the case. You did not experience the same amount of pleasure that you did when you were reunited with your lost child as you did up until that point, having lived with that, with that child all your life. Perhaps 
not all of the years of having been with that child, the pleasure that you experienced is match to the pleasure that you experienced when you were reunited, when you lost her in a crowd. Or perhaps you thought that pleasure was to be experienced in events, like, say, a promotion. A promotion makes you happy, doesn't it? Or does it? Maybe it's getting yourself a new job. Maybe it's a birthday party. Maybe it's a surprise party. Maybe it's buying yourself a new car. Maybe it's a new house. Maybe it's an experience, you thought. Taking a dip in a swimming pool. Or maybe playing sport. Maybe watching sport. Maybe winning the World Cup. Or perhaps winning the gold medal at the Olympics. You see, you'd be forgiven because in these occasions, whenever you observe the people that went through these experiences, they always wore a smile on their face. But what we didn't do is ask this question. Why is it that this event, this person, this situation, this object is a source of pleasure to them? Why is it that the same thing does not bring pleasure to another person? Why is it that the same thing on another day doesn't bring the same pleasure to the same person? We never asked these questions. And now these are some important questions that you are beginning to ask as you are listening to these talks. That's why they say, really, to find some of the best answers, all you have to do is ask some of the best questions. When you ask the right questions, you'll have the right answers. So in today's talk, I wanted to bring to life another example. Another example that most of you would have experienced in your life because throughout life we lose lots of different things, right? From things to people and when these things happen then it takes away our happiness or at least that's what we thought. We do go into a state of vexation and then when we are reunited with them we go into a state of pleasure through the relief from vexation. This relief happens in the mind. It's almost like clenching your fist ever so tight. Right? You experience that? Uh, if, you just, if you just did that now and you really clenched your fist as tight as you possibly can, right? that feeling, it's painful, isn't it? This is the equivalent of vexation, something that you feel in your mind. Right? And then what happens when you let go, when you release? You see that experience? That is the experience of pleasure. Did you experience that pleasure before you clenched your fist? So just as you held your, held your hand like that, before you clenched your fist, did you experience the same pleasure as you do now after you clenched your fist and then released? No. You know what I'm talking about. It's a very different feeling. The feeling of just doing nothing is no match 
to the experience of pleasure when you clench your fist and then let go. But looking at it, they're in the same state. This was my hand before I clenched it and this is my hand after I have relieved after I have released it following clenching my fist. It looks the same, but it feels very different. Why? This is the feeling of pleasure. That is the difference in feeling. The feeling of pleasure. And that pleasure was achieved from relief from vexation. This was the vexation and this is the relief. So it's not an unclenched fist that gives you pleasure. That is, the, that is the salient point here. It is not an unclenched fist or the equivalent of that that brings you pleasure. What brings you pleasure is the relief from vexation. So pleasure is really the outcome of a process. It's the product of a process rather than an intrinsic characteristic of an object. Therefore, it is not objective. It is something that the mind experiences as it goes through the process of relief from vexation. So it is the product of a process rather than something that can be achieved from an object, a person, an event, a situation and so on. So therefore, for us to be fooled to think that pleasure is something we achieve from outside world objects or from people or events or situations, is a real shame because we are misled, we are misguided. And when we are misled, when we are misguided, when we are ignorant to this truth, what we do is we spend our entire lifetime accumulating, acquiring, gathering and building a world around us with the things that we believe through our ignorance that bring us happiness. So I want to leave you with that thought today. Please take some time to contemplate on what we have discussed today. Revisit this topic, revisit this talk, perhaps listen to it once or twice if you find the time. But what I really want you to do, what I really invite you to do and encourage you to do is take some examples from your own life where you would have experienced this or where you have seen this happen to others and ask yourself, how was it that they experienced pleasure? Was pleasure something that they found in the object? Was it something that they found in the outside world? Or was it something that they experienced as the mind went through the process of first going through vexation and then relief from vexation? So with that, I will leave you for today and we will continue our talk next week. Before we conclude, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired to all who have helped us walk this path of happiness and to achieve the ultimate bliss, the ultimate freedom, the ultimate happiness of Nibbana. Let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are 
To be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Stipitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Lord Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them. May to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who contributed who contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed down their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transmit it to our mothers and fathers, our husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandpa grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employees and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer minister to the Devas and Brahma, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudhashasane. Let us also transfer minister to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara and who have helped and supported us, assisted us in every way they, in every way they could. Let us also transfer merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation and continue to do so. May all who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in these merits we have acquired today. Let us also transfer merits to all those who have lost their lives in the natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them and may to the power of these merits if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may to the power of all the merits we have all acquired today, you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an Arahatun Vahanse, an Arahat Mehnin Vahanse in this life itself 
and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to seeing you in the next one. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.